0: Greetings podcast listeners, once again I am Dr. James Cole and I'm here today to present to you my newest topic of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today's topic will center on the changing role of the primary care physician. Now for those of you who've listened to my last podcast, my first podcast, in fact my only podcast, I introduced myself as the son of a physician who practiced internal medicine for many decades as someone who started working in the healthcare field 39 years ago, who graduated medical school 29 years ago, and who has practiced as a military or civilian trauma surgeon, critical care physician, or general surgeon for more than two decades. I've seen the many changes in our doctors, nurses, and in our system in general over the past nearly half century, and I gave a partial list of the many advances in medicine and surgery, which still make this country a great place to receive and provide healthcare. Indeed, I have, for the most part, truly enjoyed being a physician and surgeon, and I am grateful for all of my career. But I also listed a number of areas which I feel have morphed into the bad, and even the ugly, of healthcare in America. Now, I'm sure that there are some listeners out there, perhaps healthcare administrators or legislators, who listened to my first podcast and are calling me a naysayer, a carmudgeon, a doomsdayer, or perhaps much worse. I expect that, as anyone who brings a painfully difficult topic to the forefront is often the subject of criticism. As some say, if you can't bear to discuss the topic, suppress the one who brings it up. Well, I have said in the past, bad news is like an old bologna sandwich sitting in a gym locker, or like a festering wound sitting under an unchanged bandage. None of the three get better simply by ignoring their existence. Now, allow me to delve into my topic of primary care physicians and their metamorphosis from grade to, well, something very different. Primary care physicians were once the most important people in the community, like the 1970s TV icon Marcus Welby MD, who back in the day was the captain of the healthcare ship, who attended to their patients by day and by night if necessary, who coordinated their patients' needs from head to toe and who subsequently was appreciated and respected more than any specialist or any type of professional. However, that esteem and favorable regard once received by the throngs of admiring patients is hardly what it once was. Primary care physicians have changed over the decades, and in many ways, much of that change is not good change. Primary care physicians these days are simply not the primary care physicians of yesteryear. But before I get too far down that rabbit hole, and I most certainly We'll do a very deep dive into that topic. I want to first talk about some of the positive things about healthcare in America, the good, the things that we can still all be very proud of. I feel that I need to do this so that you all don't get the impression that there's nothing good about our healthcare system. So I'll dedicate at least a portion of each and every podcast to some aspect of healthcare in America that's really good and something to be proud of. Whereas perhaps many of you have never even heard of this medical specialty, I am grateful for all the physiatrists and therapists who practice in the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Physiatry, otherwise known as physical medicine and rehab, is a specialty of medicine practiced by physicians who complete a four-year residency, training them to treat patients with physical limitations, neurocognitive impairment due to injury, illness, or any other condition which leaves them disabled. Back when I was in medical school, this specialty did not even exist, and it wasn't at all uncommon for someone who became disabled as a result of a traumatic injury or severe illness to spend several years in a hospital, even before being able to transition to a nursing home. These patients remained hospitalized because there was no other option. These patients typically needed some level of medical treatment, which often required some degree of medical specialization or care was perhaps too onerous to be carried out at home or perhaps required aggressive amounts of physical therapy in order to have any hope for a better future. I remember being a third-year medical student rotating for a month on the surgery service at U.S. Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, Virginia. There was an active-duty man, perhaps in his 40s, who had been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. The surgeons at the hospital performed an extensive operation on this gentleman, removing his esophagus and all of the cancerous tissues in the vicinity, and creating a new esophagus, if you will, with a transposed segment of large intestine pulled up through his chest. The patient remained on the service for the entire month I was on duty. I worked nearly every day that month, and I remember him well. About nine months later, I again rotated back at the U.S. Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, this time assigned to a different surgical service. But as a medical student back then, we were all expected to take call, and as such, I worked every third night in the hospital, in addition to working every day as well. During my nights while on call, I often was told to go and take care of the patient who I'd met nine months earlier, that same patient who had endured the extensive esophageal surgery, the same patient who had never yet left the hospital. And then after graduating medical school and earning my medical degree, I was once again assigned back to that same military hospital in Virginia, where I once again cared for that same patient. He had been in that hospital for almost two years. He had become so weak and so frail that after his first few months of surgery, that he never had the strength to leave the hospital. While hospitalized, he became weaker and weaker, and he eventually died in that hospital. Now, I have certainly cared for numerous trauma patients during my career who have suffered extensive injuries. These injuries included traumatic brain injury, traumatic amputations of one or even two limbs, or extensive polytrauma where numerous parts of the body were simultaneously crushed or injured. But because of the wonderful specialty of physiatry, those physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists often got the most seriously injured patients back to an independent or relatively independent state of being. So today's kudos go out to all of the doctors and nurses who work in this field, as well as the physical therapists, the occupational therapists, speech and neurocognitive therapists, and to all of their technicians who have improved the lives of countless patients who in years past would have languished in hospitals for years or in a nursing home. So that is my shout out for the day. And that now brings me back to my topic of the changing role of the primary care physician. I've mentioned that term many times now, and we often shorten it by simply saying PCP, primary care physician. But what exactly is a primary care physician? What type of doctors generally fall into that PCP category? And what should we expect from our PCP? Well, for sure, the family practitioners and the internists fall into the PCP category. In most cases, pediatricians are considered PCPs to those 18 years of age and younger. And in many cases, gynecologists function as PCPs to their female patients. It would be exceedingly rare for any other type of doctor to function as a primary care physician unless perhaps that doctor worked in a very small town and there wasn't enough business in his or her particular specialty to make ends meet, and so that doctor might offer him or herself up as a primary care physician. And so what does a primary care physician do? What does the title of PCP imply? Well, from a historical perspective, and when I say historical, I'm referring to up to the early 2000s. A primary care physician historically was one who took care of a panel of patients, who performed routine periodic examinations, and who addressed patients' needs when acutely ill, who admitted them to a hospital when needed, and coordinated a patient's care when in the hospital, and who ensured that his patients understood all they needed to know by way of teaching them in a manner they could understand. The primary care physician also assisted a surgeon when undergoing an operation, and the PCP coordinated most, if not all, of the patient's post-hospital care. In summary, the PCP was the quintessential doctor, the one in charge, the one who a patient or the patient's surrogate called when sick, the one who the entire family often relied on to give healthcare advice, and was also the one who served as patient educator. The term doctor is actually derived from the Latin word to teach, and doctor actually means teacher. Whereas there are plenty of non-medical doctors out there, they are all teachers in some way. A PhD in art history, for example, is likely a college professor and teaches young students his particular subject matter. Medical doctors are the ones who become learned in medicine and healthcare. And in addition to being able to diagnose illness and prescribe treatments, they are supposed to be able to teach their patients and their families whatever it is they need to know so as to better understand whatever disease ails them and whatever treatment regimen they need to adhere to so as to get better. Teaching one's patients used to be a key part of being a doctor. And most PCPs used to really enjoy this part of their job. But it takes time to teach a patient and unless a doctor is able to or willing to take the extra time necessary to spend with his patients, he likely will not have enough time to teach. An old medical student professor of mine used to say, knowledge is power. When someone understands, he becomes empowered. Thus teaching one's patients is extremely important, allowing them to understand and thus empowering them to have some sort of control over their healthcare situation. But if a patient's doctor doesn't teach, then the patient is not empowered to heal, and all too often the patient simply doesn't get better and lingers in a state of chronic illness. The primary care physician is supposed to be the patient's advocate and is supposed to be the patient's teacher. Whereas this was an integral part of a primary care physician's practice in years past, all too often this simply no longer happens. Now, this may seem like small potatoes to most of you listening, but By not teaching patients what they need to know and by not empowering them to help themselves minimize their disease process, patients may experience increased pain and suffering, and often those who definitively treat the disease have a more difficult time, say, doing a surgical procedure, and all with potentially increased risk of complications. I will give you a prime example of what I'm talking about. I often see patients for one of the most common surgical ailments in America, gallbladder disease. Whereas we're not born with gallstones, our genetics and our diet often result in many of us developing stones in our gallbladder. Often those with gallstones eat a fatty or greasy meal and suffer severe pain in the right upper abdomen, pain so severe that one often feels like he or she is dying. But in best case scenarios, the pain goes away completely after an hour or so. These patients often call their primary care physician who then orders an ultrasound, diagnoses the presence of gallstones, and then refers the patient to a surgeon to discuss cholecystectomy, aka removing the gallbladder. But all too often, there's a several day or even longer gap between the patient sees the PCP and subsequently consults with a surgeon. And during that interval period, the patient may suffer yet another attack of the worst right upper quadrant abdominal pain ever. And why is this? Well, it's usually because the primary care physician never taught the patient how to avoid another attack. The PCP didn't tell the patient to strictly avoid any and all fast food, fatty food, deep fried food, butter, cheese, greasy burgers, marbled meats, and so on. The PCP didn't teach the patient that eating fats causes the stomach to send a chemical signal to the gallbladder to contract. The gallbladder contracts to squeeze extra bile digestive juices into the intestinal system so that the body can process and absorb the extra grease and fat it just consumed. But sometimes when that gallbladder contracts, a stone gets caught in the outflow duct, causing an obstruction and a gallbladder squeezing as hard as it can against an obstructed duct causes severe, overwhelming, come-to-Jesus kind of pain. How does one avoid that? Well, don't eat those foods I mentioned. But how often do I learn that a primary care physician has spent absolutely zero time teaching to his patient just referred to me far too often? And that, in my opinion, is really bad. It's bad not only because the patient was not taught how to be empowered so as to avoid the additional and unnecessary pain and suffering, but in addition, every time someone suffers an additional attack, an additional layer of inflammatory scar is laid down, making the ultimate surgical procedure more difficult and it also increases potential complications. We need to be better as a profession about teaching our patients, and it really all needs to start with the PCP. Back when I was in medical school, if a primary care doc was asked, hey, what is it that you specialize in? The response was often, anything of the skin and everything below the skin. Thus, primary care physicians once prided themselves in being able to manage most diseases and problems of the head, chest, abdomen, reproductive tract, musculoskeletal system, and so on. Bit by bit, PCPs, however, stopped treating one part of the body and then another. And before long, most primary care physicians entirely stopped managing women's issues, such as performing pap smears and breast exams. And they stopped examining a man's prostate or performing scrotal or rectal exams. And in in extreme cases, some doctors won't even examine a patient's bare abdomen. In a nutshell, PCPs stopped being complete doctors, but I'll get more into that in a bit. And what about addressing a patient's acute care needs, such as when a patient calls on a Friday morning and really needs to be seen for a terribly sore throat that just won't get better. The PCPs of yesteryear would squeeze that patient in some time throughout the day and would probably prescribe some sort of antibiotic to get the patient through his suffering. But these days, many PCPs opt to shunt their patients to an immediate care clinic or to an emergency room rather than trying to work them in. If a patient's condition is so serious that admission to a hospital is the safest or most reasonable option, the primary care physicians of my generation used to admit their patients, evaluate them in the hospital, and subsequently coordinate all of their patient's care while in the hospital and following discharge. The doctor knew his patient, and the patient knew his doctor. The doctor-patient relationship used to be something special, sacred in a way, and it worked very well. But something changed about 15 years ago, and the primary care physicians gradually stop going into the hospital. In some cases, it was for economic reasons. A doctor could earn more money seeing patients in the clinic rather than attending to one or a few patients in the hospital. In other cases, it was because having to head into the hospital before the clinic day started or at lunchtime or after the clinic closed was a nuisance and eroded into personal and family time. And in other cases, PCPs who were employed by large healthcare groups were sometimes told by their employers that They were no longer allowed to attend to their patients in the hospital, as the drive to and from the hospital was an inefficient waste of time, time which could be better spent caring for additional clinic patients. So slowly but surely, PCPs stopped caring for their patients when they became too sick to be managed in an office setting. And in many ways, doctors and patients became completely dissociated following a hospital admission. And with this change came about an entire new type of doctor, the hospitalist. Now, most people listening who have been admitted to a hospital overnight within the past decade have probably been treated by a hospitalist. It's likely that most patients never even knew the name of their hospitalist. In all likelihood, a patient admitted for, say, a five-day stay was likely to have been seen by as many as five different hospitalists. But that is now the norm in how many patients receive their inpatient care. Primary care physicians have a relinquished that once very important part of their job and turned that responsibility over to a stranger, the hospitalist. And just who are these hospitalists? Well, most are internists, that is, doctors who are trained and usually board certified in internal medicine, although some are family physicians. Hospitalists are usually physicians who don't want a panel of patients, which they manage on an outpatient basis, but rather they work in shifts, caring for patients admitted to a hospital for various reasons for a limited number of hours in a given day. Hospitalists rarely know the patients they're treating, as they likely spend no more than, say, 15 to 30 minutes together per day, and uh, they never met prior to that period of hospitalization. Hospitalists don't follow their patients after discharge from the hospital. After all, that's why hospitals went into the business in the first place. Long-term patient care never interested them. And whereas some hospitalists and some healthcare organizations communicate very effectively with a patient's PCP during or after hospitalization, this is typically not the case. And thus most hospitalized patients typically now have their care coordinated by a doctor with whom there has been no prior relationship and thus the doctor has no prior knowledge of the patient and the patient's medical history, psychological support needs, or idiosyncrasies are all unknown to the doctor. Following discharge, the patient follows up with his or her PCP, but that doctor often has no idea what took place during the patient's inpatient stay other than perhaps what might be written in an often poorly constructed cursory discharge summary. Thus, perhaps the patient might be able to plug the holes in the story as to what took place during the hospital stay, but all too often, much of what took place remains somewhat of a mystery. Now, this may all sound like I'm bashing primary care physicians, and and in some ways, perhaps I am being a bit harsh on them, but I would never expect more from another physician than I would expect of myself. Could I have been a primary care physician? Could I have chosen that career path? Probably, but I didn't. But it's not because I don't respect and admire family physicians, internists, pediatricians, and whoever else might function as a primary care doctor, because I do. In fact, there was a period of time when I was in medical school that I seriously entertained becoming a family doctor or as it would have been more logical at that time for me to have chosen internal medicine as my father was an internist and I could have likely gone into the practice with my dad, I was considering family practice because they treated everyone for everything. Family doctors managed pregnant women and delivered babies. They took care of pediatric patients and adults, and they even managed geriatric patients in the nursing homes with all sorts of medical conditions. If I was going to be a primary care physician, I would have chosen family medicine as I respected how much they had to learn, how much they had to know, and how much they were able to do. But instead, I chose to become a surgeon. And while training to be a surgeon, it was ingrained into our souls that we are responsible for all of our patients' healthcare needs. If we accepted a patient, we would care for that patient. If we did surgery on a patient, we own that patient for life. We would never abandon our patients if they called upon us. And so, I am no more critical of today's PCPs than I would be of surgeons who refused to manage the patients on whom they did surgery. Now, the older doctors who trained me and who mentored me during my younger years as a resident often talked about the four qualities which were necessary to be a good physician. They were known as the four A's, and they were ability, availability, affability, and affordability. As the old gray hairs used to say, if you couldn't satisfy all of the four A's, you probably wouldn't be a very successful physician. Ability obviously reflects one's skill set, one's knowledge, one's diagnostic abilities, and one's ability to render an appropriate and successful treatment regimen. It's the equivalent of saying that one's doctors are good at what he or she does, rather than just being okay or poor. Nobody chooses to go to an okay doctor or a poor doctor, so you want to have good ability. Availability refers to being able to see the doctor when needed, to be able to get worked into the schedule when an acute or urgent medical situation arises, and to be able to discuss a particular medical problem after hours or on weekends if necessary. If your doctor is only available when you're healthy and well, or can only see you if you plan the appointment months in advance, you probably aren't getting what you'd hoped for. Affability refers to the doctor's personality, sense of humor, and ability to make patients feel comfortable in an office setting. Patients put themselves in vulnerable situations during a doctor's visit, often having to reveal embarrassing personal information and often having to subject themselves to humiliating physical exams. Having a doctor who is friendly, compassionate, and able to put his patients at ease is in much greater demand than one who has the personality of a mortician. And the final A stands for affordability. Obviously, even the best, kindest, uh, most available doctor in the world will not suffice if the cost of the medical service is out of bounds expensive. Does patients look for the better deal, which is often why managed care corporations are so popular. Patients pay less for all their health care, but as is often said in everything in life, you get what you pay for. So that begs the question, are the primary care physicians of today satisfying those four A's? If those old gray-haired doctors of yesteryear were to evaluate the modern day PCPs on the four A's, what would they say? Well, for starters, primary care physicians are far less able today than they were in decades past. Whereas PCPs were once the center for all of healthcare, where the entire family received all needed care with rare exception, Many PCPs these days have become glamorized triage and referral agents. Whereas the PCP used to manage diabetes, these patients are often now referred to an endocrinologist. Whereas the PCP used to manage congestive heart failure, the vast majority of these patients are now referred to a cardiologist. Whereas the PCP used to manage asthma and COPD, Many of these patients are now referred to a pulmonologist. Heck, PCPs less than two decades ago prided themselves in being able to do plenty of office-based surgery, such as removing skin lesions or draining an infected abscess. But rarely does a modern-day primary care physician feel comfortable handling a scalpel, even to drain an infected cyst. Instead, the PCP refers the patient to an emergency room or to a surgeon's office to accomplish something that takes no more than five minutes. There's no doubt that today's PCPs are tasked with doing far more than in years past, like generating lengthy and complex computer-based notes to satisfy the requirements of the insurance companies and the government third-party payers. But their abilities to practice medicine in the full-spectrum manner once expected of them is largely a thing of the past. Primary care physicians are less able than they once were. Okay, what about their availability? Is one's primary care physician there when needed? In my opinion, the most glaring evidence to the contrary is the PCP's abandonment of their patients when they become so sick that they require inpatient hospitalization. During a time when a patient needs his or her doctor more than ever, during that period of sickness, fear, and uncertainty, the PCP is nowhere to be found. Instead, the PCP is replaced by a hospitalist who knows nothing about the patient, who has no prior relationship with the patient, and who in most cases has not gone the extra mile to serve as the surrogate PCP. Most hospitalized patients report their hospitalist as their greatest source of dissatisfaction. So I think that we can unequivocally ascertain that primary care physicians are less available than they once were. Okay, so what about their affability? Well, this is a mixed bag. I'm guessing that there are likely as many friendly, kind, compassionate, and personable primary care physicians out there as there are crabby, insensitive, and rude ones but I don't know that for certain. So in all fairness, I think that we have to say that primary care physicians are at least as affable today as they once were. And so finally, that leaves affordability. Whereas the vast majority of primary care physicians were in private practice just 20 years ago, the vast majority of PCPs nowadays are employed. Whereas some are employed by small to medium-sized multi-specialty groups, most are now employed by large healthcare corporations and hospital systems. And as such, most of their patients are assigned to them by way of health insurance contracts between the healthcare corporation and the insurance company or third-party payer. So all of the business aspect of healthcare is completely out of the hands of the doctor. The PCP has almost no control over how much a patient is charged. In many ways, a PCP visit is as affordable these days compared to years ago. However, often a PCP visit doesn't resolve the patient's medical complaint or the issue, and a referral to a specialist is required, thus generating another doctor's fee. Of course, we all know that health insurance has become more expensive, our deductibles have gone up, and our out-of-pocket expenses have increased. So even though the primary care physician has little to no control over this particular variable, primary care physicians are not as affordable as they once were. So if today's PCPs are not as able, not as available, not as affordable, What kind of primary care physicians are we getting in this country? Is your primary care physician even a doctor? In many cases, the PCP is actually a nurse practitioner or even a physician's assistant. But is that a problem? Perhaps, or perhaps not. In my opinion, I want a PCP who is good, who I can trust, who has time to see me, and who is in my healthcare network. In a nutshell, I want a PCP who satisfies the four A's. I actually don't care if that person is a family physician, an internal medicine doctor, or an advanced practice provider, a.k.a. nurse practitioner or PA. If they all do the same thing, if they all give me the same end result, and if no one particular educational pathway or professional license offers me anything better than the other, I'll take the best of the entire group regardless if that person is a doctor, nurse practitioner, or physician's assistant. But the very fact that this is even possible, that a nurse practitioner or PA can substitute for a primary care physician, should be most alarming to family physicians and internal medicine doctors. If they are no longer able to distinguish themselves from these other professionals, then they need to ask themselves, what happened? Did nurse practitioners and PAs simply get that good? Or has the skill set and the fund of knowledge among primary care physicians declined? Whereas I may receive criticism from my PCP colleagues for saying this, I believe that it's a result of the latter. And to make matters worse, I think that a lot of my PCP physician colleagues have lost their mojo to practice medicine. Perhaps they went into medical school for the wrong reasons and their expectations just aren't being met. Perhaps they're simply burned out with working as hard as they did in college and medical school and during their residency, just to work as hard once all of their education has been completed. Or perhaps they picked the wrong residency. Perhaps many of our nation's PCPs wish they chose something other than primary care. Regardless of the reason, however, I believe that it is critical that primary care physicians do everything they can to distinguish themselves from all of their very real competition, lest family physicians and internal medicine doctors will soon find themselves unemployed as a result of being consumed by the less expensive non-physician PCPs, who I'm sure the healthcare corporations would favor employing if it meant a substantial savings. I believe that there are plenty of ways that we can once again reinvent the primary care physician, And in many ways, it all starts with redefining what a primary care physician is and what a primary care physician does. Then we reset the expectations of our graduating medical students who are contemplating a career in primary care so that they know well in advance of ever even choosing their career path, what is to be expected of them and what they're committing themselves to. And then finally, we need to sufficiently educate residents training in any of the primary care disciplines so that they all have the skills, the tools, and the resources necessary to independently practice in any of the primary care physician career tracts following completion of the residency. So if it was up to me, how would I redefine what a primary care physician is and what a primary care physician does? Well, first of all, primary care physician is first and foremost, a doctor a doctor who completed four years of medical school and was able to distinguish him or herself from the advanced practice nurses and physician's assistants with whom the PCP is competing. As a primary care physician has received two years of clinical training in all of the disciplines of medicine, internal medicine, surgery, pediatrics, OB, emergency medicine, and so on, all before ever even entering residency training, I expect that all PCPs will retain and maintain a working knowledge of all of the fundamentals of the practice of medicine. It will no longer be acceptable, in my opinion, for primary care physicians to not know what they don't know. If it was expected of them when they were in uh, their third and fourth years of medical school, then they should still know it. Primary care physicians should be expected to be the leaders of a primary care team, having advanced practice nurses and physicians assistants working under them. Thus, PCPs must always strive to know more in all of their field. In many ways, choosing a career in, say, family practice is a difficult row to hoe because there is a lot to learn in a variety of areas. Having training in medicine means that it will be expected of the primary care physician that he or she will manage most of a patient's common medical issues, say 80% of them. And this would likely include almost complete and independent management of hypertension, that is, blood pressure problems, diabetes, asthma, and COPD, chronic obstructive lung disease. Having training in surgery, it would be expected of the PCP that he or she should drain skin infections, manage most wounds, suture minor lacerations, and drain an infected cyst. And having had plenty of training in OB and gynecology, a PCP should be expected to perform a woman's periodic female exams, including breast exams, pap smears, and pelvic exams, and they should be the ones initially responsible for working up and managing the most common female reproductive tract issues. The redefined primary care physician needs to be reinserted back into the hospital setting, reclaiming ownership of his or her patients when admitted, and coordinating all care. Hospitalists can be used at night, or perhaps hospitals can be replaced by hospital-based advanced practice nurses or physicians assistants who collaborate with the primary care physicians who continue to function as the captain of the ship, utilizing the hospital-based advanced practice providers as their trusty lieutenants. And perhaps most important, the primary care physician needs to go back to the roots of the origin of the name doctor and serve as a teacher and advisor. As most primary care physicians have had four years of medical school and four years of residency training, that is on average up to six more years of education and training than their nurse practitioner and physician's assistant's counterparts. If nothing else, primary care physicians need to put all of that training to good use and to teach their patients all they need to know to empower them so that they can heal with the least amount of uncertainty and anxiety. PCPs need to be known as the patient educators, and who not only educate and coordinate their patients' needs, but also do so in a manner that makes their patients feel confident. Having reinvented the primary care physician and having redefined who they are, how do we get them there? Well, for starters, our third and fourth year medical students will need to know that this is the new paradigm, that this is the new definition of a primary care physician and that this is the new and expected career path. Primary care should be promoted as a highly desirable career in medicine where physicians will serve as leaders of a healthcare team who will have a very diverse set of responsibilities. The most motivated, the most affable and the brightest medical students should be recruited into primary care physician residencies perhaps even with the enticement of a job offer in a particular region following successful completion of a residency in the desired primary care physician pathway. Primary care physician residency programs must be prepared from day one to educate the residents who enter these new primary care pathways, holding them to the highest of expectations and giving them plenty of opportunities and experience from which to learn. Following this shift in the primary care paradigm, healthcare outcomes, patient satisfaction, and provider satisfaction should be widely studied so that we can all learn what is working, what is not working, and what additional changes should be made in the future. As physician burnout is currently at an all-time high, with suicide being higher among physicians than almost any other profession, we need to study how we can make doctors' lives more rewarding, more enjoyable, and more fulfilling. After all, we need primary care physicians more than any of us are willing to admit. What we have now is a broken version of what we once had and what we could have in the future. What those who control healthcare need to do is somehow get us back to where we need to be to recalibrate our healthcare compass, if you will, and to point us back to true north. I have covered a lot of ground today, starting with describing the pinnacle from which the primary care physician once stood, taking you to what I believe is a low point in the history of primary care healthcare. I've discussed how so many primary care physicians have become nearly indistinguishable from their nurse practitioner and physician's assistant counterparts, largely due to their own relinquishment of duties and responsibilities. It's the PCPs who have given away so much of who they once were, including the once coveted role of teacher and advisor to patients. But as I uh, described in detail, primary care physicians can be reinvented and their roles can be redefined so as to once again restore the value and esteem they once commanded. Being a consummate supporter of the primary care physician of my father's era, I wholly support and endorse the restructuring of primary care in general. Perhaps this is something that the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American College of Physicians, or the American Medical Association might consider championing. After all, all primary care physicians may soon be in jeopardy of being replaced by less costly physician substitutes unless they heed the warnings I present and consider making the changes I suggest. But if the associations and institutions don't initiate the change, and at very least the discussion to strongly consider changing, I sincerely hope that the physicians who are pursuing residency training in one of the primary care disciplines, or better yet, the medical students considering a career path in primary care, bring this subject matter to the attention of their schools and organizations. We as providers of healthcare need change, and we as consumers of healthcare need change. And so that concludes today's podcast on the changing role of the primary care physician. I hope that you enjoyed our time together. And I hope that you'll enjoy or listen to my next topic in my series of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.